Hi, I'm Tyra G., your host of Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. Welcome again to our virtual global gathering of phenomenal women and all of you who love them. Yes, you mothers, daughters, grand and great-grandmothers, fearsome and generous, humble and honest, in pursuit of new possibilities and purpose. You know, here we dig deep and we come up strong. For those of you joining us for the first time, each month we explore a new theme inspired by you. Yes, I said you. We bravely walk into places where tradition has taught us there's some things we just don't talk about, but not at this table. And no matter how hard judgment knocks, it can't come in. Here, beloved, we live beyond the wreckage. Every week we experience, educate, encourage, and empower each other. We share some aha moments and stories that have been left in our pockets for too long. Every week we start right where we are. I am just so excited about how the show is progressing. We are celebrating our ninth month of proof that dreams can come true. I thank God for every remembrance of you and your gifts of ideas, your presence, your encouragement. You do know I can't do this show without you, right? Thank you so very much. You are listening to Radio Fairfax on your TV, computer, or mobile device. And we are podcast worldwide on the internet at www.radiofairfax.org. Every Saturday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Should you miss us, no worries. You can catch our podcast on YouTube. Just key in Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. And if you feel like connecting with me offline, you know how much I love that, right? My email, Tyra at TyraGarlington.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. And thank you, Courtney Nero, for composing and performing our Frankly Speaking theme song. And for naming it, I'm Listening. So this month's question, what do you want to be when you grow up? This is a question we ask children and adults. We grow up getting clues as to who we should be from significant others and multimedia images and stories. We begin in a once upon a time, and we have a goal of living happily ever after. Somewhere between the ages of 3 and 10, we seem to be drawn to the land of superheroes. Did you know that 37% of children ages 3 to 10, when they ask what they want to be, they want to grow up to be a superhero. However, some children have their dreams interrupted. In keeping with our theme, what we think we know, today we're going to park in a space that is terribly uncomfortable. It is not happy talk. It's educational. We're going to look into and beyond the theme and the phrase human trafficking. We owe ourselves this experience. And so I begin with a quote. Picture this. It's hard to describe the exploitation. It was just everywhere. It was just a part of life. Girls would come to the corner I was working, beat up or looking downcast because they had been emotionally abused by their pimps. There was this girl who tried to work my corner. We got into a huge fight. And then I realized how young she was. I tried to protect her. She was supposed to be in a foster home, but she was being pimped out. Then one day she just disappeared. 
I saw her pimp a few weeks later, and I asked him where she was. He just laughed and said, she's gone. I, I sold her as a, at a truck stop. At the time, we didn't have the language of trafficking or understanding of exploitation. They weren't brothel owners. They were men and women who ran hotels and apartments. They weren't pimps. They were boyfriends or brothers, seemingly somehow who cared about us. Later on, I realized that the industry, that in the industry, unless you're currently being prostituted, you were an exploiter. That's just how it was. If you were making money off of someone else's exploitation, you were an exploiter. So many people today have this image of trafficking victims all tied up in black and blue with bruises. They don't understand that many of the girls and women who are being trafficked are in love with their traffickers or pimps. And these exploiters are subtle coercion experts. They don't do outright violence. The relationships are multi-layered and they're complex. Remember, most exploiters have been doing this for years. And they know the best way to control a prostituted woman is through mental and emotional manipulation. The upside for them is there's no bruises. I knew a pimp who went to community college to take psychology to control his girls. He just saw it as an investment of his time. I was involved in the sex trade for 15 years, from age 13 to 28. I'm now out and have been for about 13 years. I was able to leave because of a relationship I formed with an outreach worker. She broke all the rules, and we actually became friends. And through that friendship, which continues to this day, she showed me a lifestyle that was completely different than mine, something that in time I decided I wanted for my kids and for myself. I think I would have been able to exit earlier if there had been agencies that could be accessed more anonymously. I was extremely private, and I was embarrassed to walk into agencies where everyone knew what they did. Since I thought I was keeping my working a secret from my friends and loved ones, I didn't want to do groups. But boy, did I want help. It is my understanding that now there are agencies that operate like this. We should be replacing this and offering women a viable way out to a healthier life. It would have also been highly useful to have a livable welfare rate so that I and many, many others like me wouldn't have to work in prostitution in the first place. As of right now, I have a GED, and I'm working on getting a job. I would like to go back to school, maybe get a communications degree. I would continue to work toward the abolition of prostitution to stop sex trafficking and prostitution, I think we are going, we have to go to the root of the problem. And the root of the problem is the male demand for paid sexual access to women and children's bodies. We need to stop viewing prostituted persons and as a part of the problem. They are out there for a myriad of reasons, and they need help and support, which is why we should be working to decriminalize the soul and criminalize the demand. Let me say that again. We should stop, de excuse me, we should be working to decriminalize the sold and criminalize the demand. 
let that soak in for a minute because after our break, I have got a man who believes that every one of us can do better than give up. He is an expert in global trafficking. The thing that hit me as I began to think about what Detective Bill Wolf and I would talk about is we're local here in Fairfax County, but the problem is global. It intersects. And he has got a wealth of experience, which I'm going to ask him to tell you in his own words after a break. Stay close now. And we are back. I want to keep the promise. I am actually thrilled. I was able to get into the busy schedule of my uh, guest today. He is former Detective Bill Wolf with the Fairfax County uh, Police Department. And I want him, I wanted to tell it, but I want him to tell it in his own words. Uh, why don't we do it this way? Bill, you are, you have just authored a book. We opened this book, and the prologue tells the story of how you got to where you are. Will you share that with us now? Sure, and, and thanks for having me, Tyra. I really appreciate and, and the ability to kind of share share our message so, uh, you know, I guess it, it started quite a long time ago. So I'm a uh, legacy law enforcement. Uh, both my grandfather and my father uh, were Fairfax County police officers. Okay. And so uh, you, maybe you could say that I was, I was predestined uh, to some regard. So after high school, I uh, went on to the University of Virginia and was doing my studies there. Uh, actually entered uh, in the pre-med program. Mm -hmm. And just for whatever crazy reason, felt... Uh, Felt called to uh, to not uh, follow that path, uh, and I knew that I either wanted to do military service or law enforcement. Mm -hmm. It was a hard decision. I know my dad had high expectations of me, um, and uh, so I called him one day and I said, "Dad, I said this is this is the route I want to take, either law enforcement or military. What's your preference?" And he said, "Well, I'd I'd prefer you choose law enforcement." I said, "Fair enough." He said, "On one condition, you have to finish college," and I said that. That's fine with me. So uh, started kind of shifted my focus to foreign affairs and government. Finished out my uh, my career there. Met my my wife uh, when I was um, uh, down in college, and we actually got married. So I was married my last year of college. So mm -hmm. married very early on. Uh, we came back up here as soon as I graduated college. Came back up here and and started my career in law enforcement. Um, my initial plan was I was going to do three years uh, in Fairfax, and then I was going to go the federal route, something more high class, you know, FBI, <laughs> DEA, something like that. Um, but after about three years, uh, my wife was pregnant with our first child, and uh, I was just having a blast. Uh, I enjoyed serving the community here. I enjoyed what I was doing. Uh, law enforcement, you know, they say it's it's a front row seat to the greatest show on earth because, mm. uh, you know, you you get to see it all. You get to see the good and the bad yes, uh, in the yes, world. Yes. And so uh, really just enjoyed doing what I was doing and being out there and, and working with the people in the community. Um, and uh, about five to six years in, I decided I wanted a, a little bit of a change. Uh, <laughs> and so... I applied for the gang unit in Fairfax mm -hmm. uh, and uh, got that position and, and went over there. And it was in working gangs that I first kind of got introduced to this issue of sex trafficking that, uh -huh. uh, that you brought up earlier. Um, I had no training on it. It wasn't an issue that, that we had been taught to really look out for. 
and I was working a case involving some MS-13 individuals, and we were collecting evidence. We had an informant that was working within the gang at the time, and uh, he came back and started providing some information about what I deemed to be prostitution, mm-hmm. and and that's how I looked at it. And uh, you know, and and he said, "Look, this is this is what they're doing." We had tasked him with. We had said, "Look, we we need to understand." the illegal activity the gang's involved in, how they're making their money, mm-hmm. you know, and, and what they're doing with that money. And he came back and he said, hey, look, you know, they're, they're prostituting these girls. And I said, mm. thanks, but we want to know the bad stuff that they're doing, right? Mm-hmm. It, it was the mindset. And I think that's, you know, indicative of just kind of how we are as a culture right now. And I think you highlighted that in the beginning of the show. Um so it wasn't until we kind of took all this information to a prosecutor and said, this is what we've gathered. We don't think we have a case. Mm-hmm. The prosecutor looked at us and said, well, you have a great human trafficking case. And we uh-huh. said, what is that? Uh-huh. What are you talking about? You right, know, right, human right. trafficking doesn't happen here in the United States, certainly not in northern Virginia. Uh, this is a third world problem. And um, to to my surprise and amazement, uh, it was very prevalent uh, here in our own backyard. And that's how I first kind of got involved, and my eyes were were opened to the reality. What did that feel like? Because uh, what you just said to me was culture clash. Sure. And uh, so often, now that we are a global entity, we don't have cultural competence in a lot of areas. But right. it's always looking at the global. Sure. To look at something, and what do you mean? When you say, what do you mean? What happened to you inside? I mean, it has blown me away from... Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, I think it's I don't want to say it's easy, but it's digestible for us as a community to say, wow, that's really terrible. And yeah, it's happening yeah, yeah. somewhere else in the right, world. And right. I hope somebody's doing something about it. Or maybe I'll give $50 to an organization. But to to come to the realization that it's going on in your backyard, to yeah, come yeah. to the realization that they are targeting young people mm-hmm. and then being a father at the same time i mean you know your your personal world collides with your professional world um i can say that honestly when i was first introduced to the issue there was disbelief okay um prosecuted the case sure and mm-hmm. to me it was an efficient use of resources because we were getting bad guys off the street for long periods of time mm-hmm. but i'd say that i really didn't understand it at that point until really dove into the cases, started working multiple cases, started working with the victims mm-hmm. um, on a long-term basis. Right. And realized that this image or this this concept that I had of a, quote, prostitute mm-hmm. was so different. Because once you work with them, once you start to get them help and rehabilitation and you see that that, quote, street prostitute turned back into a 16-year-old little girl. Yes, trying to survive. And that's all that it is. You yes. know, and, and you hear the struggles that they went through. Uh-huh. And you hear, you you break down through that kind of rough exterior that they've had to develop. You know, yes, yes. To survive. It's, it's survival for them. They have to be hard. Mm-hmm. And once you get back to that innocence, it's it's just. Your heart breaks, I'm it sure. It does. It does. Mm-hmm. And what I have, I have worked with juveniles, and I have worked with women who are incarcerated. And what always gets to my heart is they didn't have alternatives. Right. And I always said to my sons, uh, make sure you have alternatives, you have choices. 
because otherwise you'll make bad decisions. And with the women, you know, um, and I had to be very careful because I didn't want to impose. Right. I wanted to expose. Yeah. And, you know, if, if I can be completely open about it, you know, I mean, we live in an age where we say we support women empowerment, but there are still many sectors of society within our culture and in our community mm-hmm. that do not support women the way that they should. They don't see them as equals. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that and, and some of the objectification of women that goes on in our culture today mm-hmm creates this environment where trafficking and other forms of exploitation can thrive. I know. You know, know. these these young people, they think, well, I made a bad decision or this is all I'm good for. You know, the the self-esteem. The devaluing. Yes, yes, yes. I, you know, I applaud the fact that you stuck to it. And more importantly, that you're being authentic with the fact that Understanding and stepping into this space and living there is a process. It is not an event. You can't just wake up one day and say, oh, I'm going to be a hero over here. Right. You have to let go of some stuff you you came into this world with in terms of expectations. You're right. And, you know, I have to give a lot of credit to my children for that. I remember my my daughter, Emma, came to me, and uh, I'm a – in my hobby, I fly airplanes, and – so she came to me one day, and she was talking to me, and, and she knows how passionate I am. And she said, Dad, can I be a pilot when I grow up? Aww. And I said, well, absolutely. Why not? She says, well, I'm a girl. Oh. And I said, Emma, you can be anything you want to be. Yes. And I think that the, the innocence of a child sometimes can really open your eyes mm-hmm. to what's going on around you and, yeah. and kind of the culture that we live in at times. Absolutely. So, all right, now— uh, you're in Fairfax County, you're in this unit. What does the unit look like? Are there lots of you? Does everyone understand? What kind of <laughs> training do you get? You know, like, we can't cookie-cutter good people like you. So it's it's interesting, you know, uh, about the same time that, that I was getting involved with this, it was really when it, it started to take hold on a national level. And so okay. a lot of a lot of my colleagues in other departments and other law enforcement agencies across the country you know, we look at each other and say, when we were getting involved, mm-hmm. we didn't know what we were doing. There okay. was no training at that time. I mean, we we created the training. We created the the investigative approaches, you know, mm-hmm. and, and um, uh, so at that time, there was no specific unit to really handle this issue, you know, okay. because – you have your vice units, they handle prostitution, but it's not, you know, it's not prostitution. And right. that's a mindset, you know, that, that's exactly, exactly. Yes, yes. Um, so, you know, certainly there there has been challenges along the way. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been some very serious challenges to, uh, you know, the garnering the support and, you know, behind doing what you want to do and what you know uh, to exist. Mm-hmm. Um Today, I, you know, can say that uh, the Fairfax County Police Department uh, is moving forward. Uh, They have a human trafficking unit. They Mm -hmm. have a detective that's dedicated full time to this um, and uh, actively or aggressively pursuing, you know, leads for for trafficking and looking for innovative ways to combat the issue. Uh, But this is, you know, something new, and it it certainly is not across the board with all law enforcement agencies. Right. Yes, I wanted to get to that. And the other thing, I'm sitting here and I'm looking at you. Okay. 
the unit or the people addressing the issues now, are they mainly male? Uh, I think you have a mix. I mean, law enforcement uh, is still predominantly a a male profession. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I will say that locally here in Fairfax, uh, in the Northern Virginia area, uh, it's a little more progressive, and you do have a, some more equality in that. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say that leadership um, is uh, very keen on, on trying to create um, equality with that. Um, but, you know, I mean, a- across the, the country, that's not always the case. I know. I, I know. And the other thing that comes across, since we are able to be transparent and authentic, is class, race, all has to play into that. Sure. And the units that are trying to serve the underserved without choices, how, what's that like to... To build a relationship, how do you break into it? Can you give me some examples? Um, you discover, or let's say, a gang is being prosecuted for this. How do you interface with the the young women who may be uh, collateral damage? What do you do? You know, Tyra, I think I think one of the most important things to remember is we're all equal regardless of race or class or academic achievement levels, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, how successful we are. It it doesn't matter. And I think that is, that was one of the things that I really focused on. You know, you meet with a young woman or a young man that was involved in these types of situations. And there's a lot of shame and embarrassment and, and other sort of negative feelings. And, you know, one of the approaches that I had is I never just jumped in and said, well, tell me your story. Tell me what happened to you. Tell me all the bad things. Mm -hmm, You know, mm -hmm. you approach that that interaction, not an interview, not an interrogation. You approach Relationship building. You do. You build Mm -hmm. that rapport with them and you let them know from the onset. You know, you say, listen, I'm not here to judge you. Mm -hmm. I don't want you to trust me just because of a badge that I wear or a uniform or anything mm-hmm. like that. So what do I need to do to earn your trust? Now, that's a question. That question right there is you've engaged them right. as a part of the solution. Right. And you've shown that you value them. So I think that – but did you have psychology and sociology input in getting you to that place? Or were you just – did you just come into the world like that? <laughs> Uh, let's say good parents. We'll give we'll give okay. them credit for that. All uh, right, Do you hear that, Mom so, and Dad? That's yeah. right. So um, no, and and you know my faith plays a big role in in what I do and and how I respond to individuals as well. Yes. Oh my goodness, that is, that's wonderful to hear. Um, I was actually uh, principal of a school, eight hundred adjudicated kids, ages ten to eighteen, and. Um, I remember there were 14 women out of the 800, and you know what the attendance was like. But uh, the one thing that I learned was silence. Be the last one to speak sometimes. Listen to them. Understand uh, what that walk means, what that look means, because what we've just said is they're trying to survive. Mm-hmm. And most of them don't have options. And uh, yeah, and, and they're trying to survive in a world that a lot of us don't understand. Yes. I, yes. Think, I think we forget about that. We get so wrapped up in our routines and, and what we know to be normal behavior. And 
it's hard for us sometimes to imagine the world that they live in. And I think you're absolutely right. Silence, listening, mm-hmm. letting them educate you. Yes. So you yes. know where they're coming from. Right. Because then you, regardless of your role as a principal, as a law enforcement mm-hmm. officer, as a social worker, you are better equipped to provide for the needs of that individual. Right. Absolutely. And for me, it was walking the talk and never raising my voice. And I actually had to coordinate with the police, the community police, don't come unless I call you because they had a habit of coming. (laughs) And um, I noticed the students sized me up over a period of time. Sure. And when they saw my behavior aligned with the conversations we had, it was like opening a whole new door. Uh, My heart bled. And I will say this, of all the experiences I've had, and there have been many, that school that year did more to affirm who I am Mm -hmm. than any other time because I was tested the whole time. Yeah, I think think those are moments in our life that, you know, at the time we don't realize how powerful they really are in forming who we are. Yes. And, uh, you know, we can look back on those moments. And, you know, if, if we went back to the moment, those months those years that that I was in it and working those cases Mm -hmm. to me it was at first it was a job Mm -hmm. and you know now I look back and to who it's formed me to be and my perspective and and what I feel my mission now is in life has Mm -hmm. completely changed isn't that interesting and um I I like to do well I do some uh inspirational speaking and I like to say to people, you know, you have everything inside of you to be who you were created to be. I'm just here to help you open the doors. That's all. We all have a destiny. Um, let me ask you this. Uh, I was reading about you, and I saw three letters come up, like FBI. Then I saw Homeland Security and uh, some awards and things like that you did. Do you want to share? Sure. So at the time, um, because it was a new area that, that we were really exploring, you know, when, when I first started working trafficking in Virginia, we didn't have any anti-trafficking laws. There was no oh my goodness. criminal laws that, that we could kind of mold and, and deal, you know, but there was no specific uh, legislation wow. um, outlawing trafficking. And so a lot of the work that we did was on the federal level. And so I worked as a task force officer with, with federal agencies uh, to be able to investigate them and prosecute them on the federal level. So what, let me make sure I understand and the audience understands. What you're saying is without having local ability to prosecute, how did you then take the case? How did you do that? Was it just a collaboration between local and federal? or? So we do uh, – th- Federal agencies uh, create task forces, okay. and what they can they can essentially deputize local and state officers okay. to have the same authority that a federal agent has on a very specific scale. So to work these these investigations, and so that was that was how we dealt with them uh, for the longest time, and are, they're still being dealt with in some regards on the federal. Do we level. have laws now? In 2015, Tyra, 2015, we enacted our first law. Wow. Yep. So, all right. What does that allow our local law enforcement to do, that law? I think the most important thing the law does is it defines the problem. You know, you can't ask law enforcement 
to investigate something that they can't define. That's true. And police define things based on what's legal and what's illegal. So I think that was the biggest, um, the biggest benefit to having that law in place is Virginia formally defined what human trafficking is. Um, and that, that allotted the resources or the response mechanism for police to respond. So what would be the, uh, the cues that you would look for um, if you're on the street, uh, policeman? I know what visually I see as a street prostitute, but that's not necessarily where uh, human trafficking is starting. Right. You know, unfortunately, we see the the age of trafficked persons going down. Um, And so we see 12 year olds, 13 year olds being drawn into it. And unfortunately, these are individuals that could even be living in their own homes, Tyra. They they could be sleeping in their own beds, going to school. And these traffickers take advantage of them in the afternoon hours. Oh, no. um, And exploit them or over the weekend. And they're not, you know, that kind of pretty woman image, the you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. the mini skirt and the yeah. high heels. That's not what you see. I was um, thinking it might be like runaways or kit. Well, I'm sure that happens like in the bus stations and all that and homelessness. Sure. Well, I want to talk about that as well. Yeah. But what you're telling me is my daughter, I could be at work and for whatever reason she's been seduced, whether it's money, drugs or whatever, to spend this amount of time. Right. In the afternoon. Right. Performing certain things. Oh, my gosh. It's it's terrible. And I mean, it's truly life altering um, the the effects of of the crime itself. And, you know, sometimes we talked earlier about the fact that the community doesn't necessarily see the problem or they don't understand the problem. Right. So a parent may think that the child's having behavioral issues or rebelling. Just acting out. Right. Okay. And never be able to identify. And that child, most children are not going to be comfortable enough to come forward and say, hey, mom or dad, I'm a prostitute. No, I don't. I don't think so. No. You know, I mean, how how are we going to react to that? You know, Um, and uh, so it's so important that that we're having this conversation. And I'm thankful that you're you're spreading the message. Well, and I want to actually do kind of a a plug here. This is one of probably several conversations. We're talking about it today with Bill from the lens of law enforcement, but we're going to be blessed soon to speak to a mother of a daughter who's had this experience, and that will be in our next month, and who knows where we'll go from them, because as I said, we got stuff to talk about here. You know, people are sitting around a table, and I want them to feel comfortable enough to say, hey, let me look at my, let me, let me ask my daughter this. Let me ask my son this. And there's a fine line between what's happening with young people and sex and dating and all and crossing over. Right. And uh, we should be alarmed. It's a blurry line. Yes. That's, That's the problem is it's a blurry, blurry line. You know, a lot of times these traffickers, that's that's how they operate. You know, they make these young people fall in love with them. And then it's through some, you know, made up emergency or mm. even a guilt trip. If you loved me, you would yeah, yeah, yeah. do X, Y and Z. Right. And, you know, and, and these young people without having a good grasp or concept of what real love is, mm-hmm. um, because there's so much learning that goes on through the Internet. And yes, you know, it's, and it's I, social. Yes. 
yeah. it's problematic. You know, we we live somewhat in a fantasy world right now because yeah. uh, these young people, you know, they're learning about healthy relationships. Well, they're not healthy, but they're learning about relationships through, mm-hmm. you know, TV and YouTube and, and some of these other locations. And I think it's really important especially right now because there's so many mixed messages. I agree. And and more than ever before do we need to be having these conversations now. And I, I keep thinking of several things, actually, when I think of young people, preteen up, is their need to belong, their need to be affirmed, and their inability to see that most of what they're seeing in terms of beauty, has been airbrushed. Yes. Most of what they're seeing in terms of movies have been rehearsed and scripted. Yes. And uh, it's not a commercial. It's a life. And how do we help them understand? Because when I look at them uh, on a date, looking down in their laps at their devices, and uh, what are they missing in creating real intimacy? Well, I can't tell you how frustrating it is to go out to dinner and to look at the family across the way and everybody's buried in their device nobody's having a conversation uh they're all on social media or you know playing games or playing games and now you go to some restaurants and they provide the games for you on those devices and it's you know i think there's just a real breakdown uh in intimacy in that connection and we are still human we need that and are hungry for it. Yes. And I, um, I always talk about hallelujah hugs, you know. And I, I will ask young people, may I give you a hug? Because I don't want it to be misinterpreted. But they are so hungry. Yes. Hungry for that. And I'm talking healthy hugs. I'm not talking, about, right, you know. Right. And, and they don't necessarily discern. They're so hungry. Mm-hmm. They can't discern. Is this a good hug or a bad hug, a good touch or a bad touch? Um, what I need to do is, uh, I do this all the time. I get so involved. We need to take a commercial break. We will be right back. Don't you go far now. And we are back. If you are just joining us, we are having a wonderful conversation with former detective Bill Wolf. And we are, our topic is uncomfortable and yet extremely necessary, um, all of us as adults and all of us as young people who have peers that may need to have a conversation. That's that's another thing I want us to, to harp on. This is an intergenerational show as well as international. We need to encourage our young people to be honest with one another. Um, sometimes it's so important for them to fit in. They keep secrets, terrible secrets that are tearing them apart. And... Um, not forcibly, not bullying, but just be sensitive to that person you're calling friend. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So in, in some of the work that I do now, we, we encourage two specific things. One is peer-to-peer education. You uh-huh. know, We want young people talking to young people about these issues. The other thing is, is, is we employ um, what we call is, is three to succeed. We want that young person to have three trusted adults uh, okay. in their life. Uh-huh. It doesn't always have to be a parent. And, mm-hmm. and I bring that up specifically with this trafficking issue um, because I met a, a woman today, actually, uh, who was trafficked. Uh, she's a professional now, an adult, very mm-hmm. successful. But she was actually trafficked by her own mother starting at the age of now, eight. Now, see, this is something we don't talk about. It is. 
And I know that's happening. Absolutely. I mean, you you link it directly to what's going on with the opioid epidemic and and other things. These adults with children are getting addicted to drugs. And when they need money, there's that child. And they can make, unfortunately, they can make good money off of that Especially the young ones. Yes, yes. And what bothers me so is this is so uncomfortable to talk about. It's easier to look away. Absolutely. And we're talking about sustainability of not just our children, but of our future. You know, we're losing these children. We need them to be functional. We need them to be alert and competent when they're adjusting our tubes while we're in the nursing home. <laughs> okay? So um, what would you, what message would you give to a young person how they might approach a friend? And then I want to segue into what you're committed to and doing now, which I think is totally wonderful. Yes. So, you know, the, the big thing is to be there for your friend. You know, we need we need to be aware mm-hmm. of what's going on in each other's lives. And mm-hmm. so if if I notice that all of a sudden you were starting to isolate yourself from our peer group right. and you started acting secretive and depressed and you started physically looking worn down, like you just weren't sleeping well, right, right. Uh, possibly that you had an older boyfriend or girlfriend, mm-hmm. um, these would all be indicators to me that something's wrong. And I think, unfortunately, our younger population and our adult population you know, would look at that situation and say, you know what, if they don't want to be part of our group anymore, we'll move on. We don't have time. Yes, yes, yes. But those are huge warning signs. Those are those are signs that something's wrong. And so we have to um, empower the community to look out for each other, to be a community. And I'm looking at a brochure that says just ask to end human trafficking. And I know this is a spirit-to-spirit, heart-to-heart initiative. Can you take just a few minutes and share with us what this is? Sure. So uh, back when we were first getting started, uh, we um, had a a mandate to do some community outreach and awareness. And so we started thinking about, you know, how is it that we're going to do it and what's kind of a campaign? Mm -hmm. And there was a young woman that uh, we had recovered out of a hotel. She was 17 years old. Mm -hmm. I was interviewing uh, Emily and... She said she had been trafficked since the age of 13. Oh, my. And um, for four years, she had been being exploited by these traffickers. During that time, she had parents, both parents involved in her life. Uh, she had uh, she got involved in the juvenile justice system because she started acting out, and they mm-hmm. thought it was behavioral issues. There were truancy issues with school, so she had counselors, probation officers, all these people, all professionals, yeah, 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 involved in her life, and yet she was continuing to be trafficked. I said, Emily, how is it possible that this happened for four years What'd and she nobody ever knew? She said, nobody ever asked me. Oh my gosh! If That's somebody simple. would That's have simple. just asked. I wanted to tell somebody. I wanted out. I did not want to be doing this. But everybody kept blaming me. Everybody kept saying I had behavioral issues. I needed to get better grades. I needed to to have a better attitude. And nobody ever asked me. And that broke my heart, Tyra. But you see, that's the key. It is. That's the key that opens the door. And uh, when I was saying before, be the last one to speak, a lot of times... Even when I'm talking with uh, women that I am uh, coaching, 
is to listen intentionally and then ask the question, where does it hurt? And if I think it's one thing, mm, is it possible that? But to give that person permission to yes. go there. Yes. And sometimes their shame is, this is what people I think don't understand, that the difference between guilt and shame, when you are ashamed of something that you do, you become that thing. Yes. So if you do something bad, you think you're bad. No, you have to learn to separate right. what you do from who you are. And that's, you know, your example was wonderful. Yeah. So did that contribute to the birth So that of? was the name. You know, we, we sat around. I, I remember sitting around someone's dining room table brainstorming. Uh-huh. What are we going to call this this campaign? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I was thinking about that story, and I said, you know what? In memory of Emily, let's just ask. Let's just let's ask. just ask. And so the the concept is, uh, we've developed programs around the idea of educating mm-hmm. with the message of ask your neighbor what's going on. You know, not not necessarily ask for help, right? Because now we're putting the burden back on right, the right, victim, right? right? That, and we've uh-huh. got to stop doing that. Right, right. They're burdened with surviving at that point. Yes. Let's put the burden back on the community mm-hmm. and say we need to be the ones looking out. We need to be the ones that are asking and providing the opportunities and the help and the 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 safe environment to have that conversation. I think you said a key word, the safe environment. The one thing that I understand about victims, they can discern when they're in a safe environment. Mm-hmm. They can discern when they're in a place where they can take a step toward survival. And the rest of the time, they're just like, you know, let me make it through right now. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, what's been the success? I know people are probably saying, come, talk to us. Yeah, no, it's it's been great. Um Again, you know, turning back the clock, if I ever thought that this is where I would be at this point in my life, but, you know, I, I believe so passionately in in the mission that we have, and we've had huge successes both uh, in preventing young people from getting involved because mm-hmm. they were able to identify the grooming process and also empowering young people that were being exploited to get out of the situation, saving yes. those young lives yes. uh, from being involved in this. So we've developed um, basically five program areas that we work in. Mm-hmm. And uh, through those areas, we are building safety nets in communities. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. you're going to walk a high wire, you're going to have a safety net underneath yes. it, yes, right? Yes. And these uh-huh. young people are walking high wires yes, in today's are. society. They and are. we need to build that safety net. I, I find it interesting that we talk a lot about drugs. You know, we warn our young people, drugs are bad, drugs are out there, just say no, you know, all of these, yeah. these things that are out there. <laughs> but how many of us are talking to our kids about trafficking and the threats of traffickers? But see, that's the whole point. And when I say, you know, there's things we're going to talk about here that people don't. Right. And that's Another thing, um, I'm doing the series on courageous conversations, and we're going to be looking at a lot of things people are not comfortable talking about. But if we're going to make it, we have to be. Let me ask you this. If someone wanted to know more about the campaign or if they wanted you to come speak because you obviously have a message, and I'm very grateful you're sharing it, how do they get in touch with you? 
So they can visit our website, which is justaskprevention.org, mm-hmm. uh, or they can also email us at info at justaskprevention.org. And, and I'm glad you bring that up because uh, we would love to partner, and I know that you have a listener base mm-hmm. uh, all across the country and mm-hmm. even internationally. Uh, we would love to be able to bring our campaign and our programs to other communities across the United States. Okay. Uh, and also internationally, we're, we're actually working uh, in some foreign countries now. Uh, and it's it's some re- it's a really exciting time for us. It's an exciting time for me because my heart is with the future. Uh, looking in young people's eyes, there are all kinds of stories, and I'm looking for joy. But when I see pain, I have to step in there and say, "Okay, I'm here." You know, and it's it's interesting. We want to protect the young people, but you know, I. I in my spare time, I'm a professor at George, an adjunct professor at George Mason. I tell the students there, and I say, listen, I said, we're just finding our way right now. You all are the change makers. Absolutely. You all are going to set the policies and put the programs in place yes. that are going to affect real change. Absolutely. Um, I ask you to do homework for me, and you said, oh, Tyra, I didn't. So we're going to do impromptu. I asked Bill if he were... If he'd write a letter to his younger self, maybe it'd be easier. Pretend like you're talking to your daughter. Sure. Okay, you want to do that for me? Sure. All right, let's go with that. You know, when I was growing up, I wanted to be wealthy. I wanted to be able to support my family and and do good things. I thought that I would have two children, be married, live in the nice house, Uh, hopefully be a doctor or some successful government worker. But as I started to grow and and start to interact with uh, more and more people, I I felt a calling, a great respect for the work that my dad had done and felt that law enforcement was really the path for me. So I started my career, had a great time, had fun driving fast, running (laughs) after bad guys. Uh, Really enjoyed that in, in my younger days and got to work with gang members and and that really started to open my eyes to the reality of things and I think for so long I had been I'd been selfish I'd been selfish in my approach to life and I had ignored other people around me and what I want you to know is that sometimes those messages come from people you don't expect them to come from from gang members, from from people that might be looked down upon in society as simply prostitutes. But they can really change your life. And I want you to be open to, to all possibilities. And I want you to succeed and I want you to be successful. But I also want you to be able to take risks, to stand up for others, to protect those that may not be in a position where they can protect themselves. Mm. Mm. Yes. And she'll always be daddy's little girl. You know that. She's a beautiful little girl. Uh, I'll send her some love. Thank you. Um, wow. I just, um, I want to remind people, when your day happens and you're going, oh, I am sick of being tired. I'm tired of being tired. I don't like this. I don't want to hear that. 
I got to remind you that you're worthy and you're not alone. You are not your circumstance. There's something that you've been created to do that only you can do. Get in touch with who you are. You are a designer's original. Your label was created by God. Please understand this. You've been listening to Frankly Speaking with Tyra G. My guest has been Bill Wolf, uh, a heart of gold and a spirit to give in that space, that uncomfortable space called human trafficking. If there's just one of you out there that heard a message that struck home, then this show has done what it was supposed to do. And if there's one, two, three, four, five of you who can think of someone that maybe you want to spend a little more time with, please do. Remember, you're not alone. Your seat is guaranteed. I look forward to visiting with you again next week, same time. I think we'll let Beethoven take us out. Bye now.